Thanks for tuning in to the Sanctuary Church Podcast. We're a church in the great city of San Francisco, and our heart is that everyone would experience true sanctuary in Jesus. We're currently in a series called Just Jesus, where we're walking through the Gospel of Mark so that in this time of deconstruction and disappointment, we can simply get our eyes on this person of Jesus. Just a quick note, our teaching often does include a decent amount of discussion and community response, and we do intentionally edit that out in order to preserve confidentiality and the Sunday experience. So you'll likely not hear the full content or context of the teaching, but still, our hope is that this will encourage you and equip you. And really, we're just so honored that you would listen in. Here it is. All right, um, so I want to start off by, um, uh, by, by giving an illustration, but by way of introduction or in- intro to that illustration, um, some of you may have noticed the lady up here that was reading the scripture earlier was my wife, and she's pregnant, uh, in case you didn't know. Uh, she didn't just have one too many burritos. She is, uh, we're, we're actually very pregnant. We're about to, we're expecting in about two weeks. Uh, so yeah, so, but she's, yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm editing myself. Uh, anyway, the um, the the cool thing about that, or not, it's like our third time around, so it's not our first rodeo. However, it's been a while, so we're like retraining ourselves and re like thinking about the delivery process, which is quite intense for those moms. Any moms in the room? Well done. That's an intense process. Um, and, and so we're like, get, she's getting back in the mindset of it, reading the books, listening to the podcast, doing all that. And she was telling me about a story that she heard from, from this. And one of the stories was, um, there was a lady that was helping, um, other people kind of get in the right mindset through, for the delivery labor process. And they had them hold an ice cube, held an ice cube. And as they were holding this ice cube in their hand, she was saying like, hey, well done. I know it's so cold. I know it's really hard, but you're doing a great job. Keep going. It's just a little longer. You're doing great. I know it's really, really cold. It's really hard, but you guys are doing great. You can hold it for just a little bit longer in your hand. And then 30 seconds got finished. And then she said, how, how did that feel? And got some feedback. And then later in the morning, she gave everyone an ice cube again. And instead of actually saying, like giving, offering encouragement about how we're doing, it was, she started painting this picture of the beach and waves crashing in and sand, feel like painting the picture of sand underneath the person's feet. And um, little did they know, it wasn't just 30 seconds, actually 60 seconds later that she asked how they were doing. And they were actually better than they were before, less pain before, but it went for 60 seconds instead of just 30 seconds, double the time. And I think that shows a little bit like what we choose to focus on can change how we experience life. What we choose to focus on can change how we experience life. We become what we look at. We talked a couple of weeks ago. We, come, we become what we look at rather, uh, either by design or by accident. What we see determines who we'll be. And so we're in this series. We're actually coming back to this series called Just Jesus, Eyes on Jesus in a time of deconstruction and disappointment. In the last several years, we've spent a time of tremendous deconstruction, disappointment, disillusionment, despair, all the Ds, right? We've had a lot of ice cubes that we've been holding, as it were. Um, and, 
and yet, if we could just get our eyes on Jesus, we were, and all this confusion, all this mess, like, what would it look like to just get our eyes back on this person of Jesus? Because what you choose to focus on can radically impact and change your experience of life. What we see determines who will be. Um, so in this sermon, uh, just to let you know, I, was, uh, I like to give credits. I was really helped by a guy named Bo Noonan, who leads a church up in Tacoma, and Tim Keller's uh, work on this passage. But we'll be coming back. Um, we've actually, it's actually been like over six months since we were in this series. So we've been going over the last like year and a half through the book of Mark. Uh, we're going to come back to it. We're in the middle of Mark chapter 7. Just to give you a little bit of primer, it's, it's been so long about where we've been and just to kind of give you some context for the story that we're about to read, where it finds itself in. The beginning of Mark chapter 7, it starts out with Jesus being challenged by the Pharisees and then Jesus in return rebuking the Pharisees. Uh, that uh, Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees because his disciples weren't following the ceremonial washing rules and were eating foods that other people would say unclean. And he, Jesus rebukes him and challenges him and says, it's not about the outside, the going in that matters, it's actually what comes from your heart, um, comes out. And so it's not about all these rules and regulations that the Pharisees put on. The Pharisees, by the way, were supposed to be the like, cream of the crop, the religious people of the day that were the in ultimate insiders. And Jesus said, it's, you got it all wrong. And so it begs the question, it sets up this question, okay, if you can't get clean that way by following the rules, how do you get clean? And then it's followed immediately by two different stories. And that kind of sets up a big contrast between that scene. Um, Jesus actually leaves his country. He goes into the Gentile territory. And first, uh, he there's a story of the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, Tom preached on this, again, like six months ago. But this woman comes into this house that Jesus is in. She's a Gentile. She's basically a pagan. She uh, has a daughter that's demon-possessed and asked Jesus to heal this daughter. And Jesus responds pretty shocking. He says, it's not right to take the children's, breast, it's children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And the woman said, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And what, what this is getting at, um, Minette's actually going to speak in a little bit about some of the Jewish festivals and uh, what's happening right now. But what Jesus is getting at is that salvation is first to come to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. But this lady doesn't argue with Jesus. She actually enters into the parable. She's the first person in the Gospel of Mark to actually understand a parable of Jesus. Yeah. She enters in and engages with Jesus about this truth that his table's overflowing. Like, there's so much food. There's, like, crumbs, like, all on the ground. And she doesn't need it. She just needs a little crumb. But there's, this grace is so overwhelming, so overflowing that there's so much to go around. And even just a little crumb is enough. And Jesus marvels at her faith and, he, and delivers. Um, and so that's the, that's the setting. That's what happened right before this happened. I thought that would be helpful to kind of set the stage as you were, uh, as it were. So what we do at Sanctuary, we love to read the scripture. We actually break into groups uh, at this stage and answer a couple of questions. So we'll, I'll have someone um, read if anyone wants to volunteer. But then we'll, we'll break into small groups. We'll ask two questions. What does this passage tell us about God? What does this passage tell us about people? We'll come back, we'll share a little bit, and then I'll have a few thoughts as well. This passage will be on your screen. It's Mark 7, verses 31 through 37. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah, we're not just spiritual beings. He's not just after our spiritual soul. He's after our physical bodies as well. Yeah, we're integrated beings. And this is 
putting that on display. We have a physical savior. Um, this is awesome. Well, great. You've, I mean, we've already hit on so much already. So um, let me just offer a few points uh, here. But some background uh, on this topic. So we've already kind of hit on it. But Jesus left his home country. He's touring Gentile territories on the east side of Galilee. What, what is interesting, the last time he's in this region, the Decapolis, which is a reference to ten cities, um, it w- the last time we see him here was when he cast out the demon or the, the person who's called Legion, the mini demons, into the pigs, and then they went to the water. And um, so that was the last time, just a couple of chapters ago, he was in this region. What happened, and it says in Mark chapter 5, the people began to plead with him. They were begging him, what? To leave the region because they were so terrified of what just happened except for one guy, the guy who he just healed, and he wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, go back to your hometown, tell everyone what happened. And apparently he did that, because now he's back in the Decapolis, and these people find him and want something to do with Jesus, want him to heal their friends. So he, this guy must have obeyed. And this person here that uh, needs healing, it seems like he at one point could talk, he could hear, but something happened. It sounds like he got a disease or something, because it says he could hardly talk now. Not that he couldn't talk at all. So it sounds like he had one, at once knew how to, and something happened to him um, to give him this con- condition. But kind of going back to the intro, getting our eyes on Jesus, I think there's four aspects of Jesus that we can see in this, in this story that, that can help us. And you've hit on a lot of them, but there are four aspects, and I think if we could get our eyes on this Jesus and these aspects, it would help us see differently and help us actually live differently. Um, that we might be clean. So the four things we can see about Jesus, you're going to appreciate this. He's the seeing Savior. He's the spitting Savior. He's the sighing Savior. And he's the stunning Savior. Like my alliteration there? Jackie does. Um, but first, the seeing Savior. The first thing I think you see is he's available. Like he's he actually left Israel. The reason he left Israel, because there were too many crowds. He needed time away with his disciples. But even in these two stories, um, we see he's approachable. He's interruptible. He engages, even though he's trying to be hidden. In the, the previous story, this little woman literally comes into his house that he's at, and he engages. And in this story, this, his friends bring this man over, and, and he engages. It says both, in both cases, both stories, they were begging Jesus to drive out the demon, and then to lay hands on him. And he doesn't back away. He's not too busy. And I think, especially even in the Decapolis, he doesn't hold grudges. I mean, the last time he was in this land, they were begging him to go. And he doesn't say, I, you begged me to leave. I'm not going to heal you now. You're, you ungrateful people. And no, he, says, he doesn't say, I'll show you. He says, he comes and shows up again and again. And I think for us, maybe a first application of this is like, there's no three strikes and you're out rule with Jesus. Like, he's ready to engage. He's not too busy for us. He's not too busy for me. Um, When you read the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels, the cumulative account, the deduction you absolutely have to make is that when Jesus sees suffering and fallenness, his default response, almost his, like, knee-jerk natural inclination is to move towards it, not away from it. Um, Another application I was thinking about, I've, I've been here four years now, October 15th, we have a four-year anniversary in the city, we're loving it, but I'm already on my third set of friends, right? <laughs> like, this city is so transient, and it's so easy to, like, close off your heart to new people and, like, not give yourself over 
But we don't see Jesus doing this. He's always available. He's always open to people coming in. And maybe if you're like me and like tempted just to like self-protection a little bit, towards self-protection a little bit, he doesn't do it. Jesus opens himself up and there's an invitation to keep your heart soft towards the people that he puts in your path. But it's not only that he engages, it's, I think, the way that he engages. Um, we hit on this, Joni hit on this several. It's, he engages exactly how we need. He meets us where we're at. He sees us exactly where we are here. Um, I think I heard it in some of the discussions. It wasn't brought up in publicly, but he takes this person aside, doesn't he? Um, away from the crowd. All his life, you can imagine, he's probably been a spectacle. And Jesus won't use him as a prop to grow his follower count. He sees him, he pulls him aside. Um, and we talked about this too, about his model, how he like, you know, puts his hand on the person's ear and his tongue. And I don't believe this is like a model for how to go heal someone. I don't think that like, we're, it's a one, two, three step. I think he's seeing this person as he is individually, loving well, one person at a time. And I think it's incredible. But I think what's interesting though is if you compare that story to the immediate prior story with the Syrophoenician woman, it's completely different. When she came in, he challenges her. He actually, we didn't talk about this, Tom does a good treatment on the sermon six months ago, but he calls her a dog. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he challenges her. He, 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 he has this really challenging statement, but she entered into the story. She engaged with what he said, and, and she had faith and was delivered. And I'm reminded about the story in I think it's John chapter 11, yeah, and Laz when Jesus' friend, Lazarus, had died, he comes to the scene, and he's greeted by first Martha and then Mary, and they both say the exact same thing. Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, and Jesus actually, in that moment, challenges her and has kind of a, a theology lesson there. Mary comes a little bit later, you can go read it, says the exact same thing. Lord, if you had not been there, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus weeps. The exact same statement to one, he offers the ministry of truth. To the second, he offers the ministry of tears. And I think sometimes, I mean, this is a story of how Jesus actually meets us exactly where we're at and he knows exactly what we need more than maybe even we know it ourselves. Sometimes he rebukes us. Sometimes he challenges us. Sometimes it'll feel intense, maybe initially off-putting, and we're like, what's going on? Maybe even this morning you've been convicted of sin. Maybe there's something you're living a deceitful life, or you're looking at stuff on the internet you shouldn't be looking at, or maybe you're grasping for control, maybe, and God is actually challenging you. He's provoking you, and he's, that's part of what God does, because he hates sin. He wants to set you free. It's a cancer for your soul. I've expressed to you like God's convicting me like in this season of like my anxious heart and my propensity for wanting to like control things and not being able to just to focus on him. And he had to get my attention. Sometimes though, it's a still small voice. It's the faintest of whisper. He always sees us. He always gives us exactly what we need and he knows better than us exactly what that is. He is the mighty God He's also the wonderful counselor. And he sees us and he deals with us and he treats us just as we are. And I think actually, by the way, this is why we need each other. 
is because we all actually experience God's great grace, maybe in a different way. Your testimony is not my testimony. The way that you actually hear and receive from God and the gifts he gives to you and the ministry he gives to you is, could be different than the ministry he gives to me. And when we get in groups together, when we meet at men's night around a fire, or we meet in women's night, you know, actually we get to experience that. Ephesians 3, Paul talks about the church being um, the way that God puts his manifold wisdom, his multifaceted wisdom on display for the world. And I think part of that is like each of us experiencing God's grace and gifts and he, he, even in a meeting today, like God's speaking to different people at different things, and it's this beautiful picture altogether because he speaks to us individually. So first we have a seeing Savior. Secondly, uh, Dan hit this, we have a spitting Savior. <laughs> Verse 33, he took him aside away from the crowd. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and then he spit and touched the man's tongue. And it blows my mind to think about the almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, who spoke and this whole world is existed, it was created, that God <laughs> spits. He's the spitting God. It's absolutely crazy if you think about it. But it's the crazy story of the gospel, right? That God put on flesh and blood, the God of the universe put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Christianity is the only religion I'm aware of it's not about a moral code. It's not about a certain belief system. It's not a doctrinal creed to believe. It's not a life philosophy to live. It's not a list of ceremonial washing rules. It's fundamentally different. It's not about a belief. It's about a person, a person of Jesus. And what the gospel says is we're so far gone. We're so weak. We're so broken. We can't check off enough boxes. We can't follow enough rules. And I think that's actually when, why the woman, why Jesus calls the woman a dog in this parable. She didn't argue. Because the truth is we are fifthly animals. We don't deserve to be at the table. We are deaf and we are mute. We can't hear God. We can't speak to God on our own. So that when God wanted to reach out to us, he didn't write a book with all the instructions. He didn't send us on a meditative retreat to a spa to like get in touch with ourselves. He didn't send a prophet to tell us how to find God, he ultimately sent himself. He sent his son. He was born into the world and became very earthy. <laughs> earthy enough to touch, to taste, to smell, and to spit. Um, we have a spitting God. We have a spitting God. We need a spitting God, and we have one. And he's not after, just as Dan was saying, not after an ethereal salvation. He's a physical God. He promised hope for this whole world, the physical world. He holds out a promise for a renewed earth, a physical earth. So he doesn't just offer metaphorical hearing. He actually opens actual ears. <laughs> and that's what we believe, and that's what we've seen done. And it also tells us he knows what it's like to be us, right? John 1, 14, word became flesh, dwelt among us. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Dorothy Sayers, she puts it this way, for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his rules and played fair. 
He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted himself. He has himself gone through the whole of the human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. Hmm. We have a spitting God who knows what it's like to be you. Which leads to our next point, which Billy articulated already. We have a sighing Savior. Verse 34, when he is healed, he says, he looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, he said, the fafla, which means be opened. And if you were, I think you, hit the, you got the meaning exactly right, Billy. If you look up that word sigh, it actually can also be just as easily translated groan or moaning. Um, it's the same word that's used in Romans 8. All creation is groaning as it suffers, that we groan inwardly as we wait for Jesus. And so just picture the scene in your mind's eye. Jesus has his hand on this man's ear. He's looking up to heaven. And then all of a sudden you hear this deep belly groan emerge. This is not a God that's apathetic to our suffering. He's not ignorant to our pain. This is a man who's known in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows, the suffering servant. We already talked about when his friend Lazarus died, he wept. In Matthew 9, verses 36, there's a picture of Jesus going from town to town, drawing tons of crowds, performing miracles, healing, teaching. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He's not apathetic to our pain. There is a mystery, a complete mystery in suffering. The, many of us are probably bringing our own stories and experiences of suffering and pain and ice cubes, as it were, into this meeting. Um, and there's no easy answers. The Bible doesn't offer an easy, simple answer. But I do think this is important. What is Jesus groaning at in this story? What is he groaning at? Is he, is he groaning at the person? Is he saying, gosh, you, you're, you shouldn't have sinned. You're, you're too much of a sinner. No. He's not groaning at himself. <laughs> he's like, oh, I'm supposed to be God. Why didn't I fix this? I call myself God and I couldn't even fix No, that's not what he's doing. In the face of suffering and evil, he's not groaning at this man and he's not mad at God. Where does he gro- direct his groan? And where are we to direct our groan? I'm a pretty laid back guy know me it takes a lot to kind of like rile me up and get me angry um i'll tell you what though you mess with my kids game over you want to see me you know when he groans i think jesus is showing us that evil and sickness are not part of his design he's saying this isn't right and Jesus knows he's about to heal this man. He's, he's still God in this moment. He's Jesus. He knows what's about to happen. But I think he's thinking of the millions of people across history that can't speak. The millions across history that can't hear. The millions that, were suf- that will suffer. And he gives us a clue. This is why I think that. Mark leaves us a clue for us. In verse 35, it says, At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, 
and he began to speak plainly. That word, that phrase, the tongue was loosened, it's a very odd word in the Greek. And the only other time it was used in all of Scripture was actually the Greek translation, translation of the Old Testament. In Isaiah 35, verse 5 through 6, it's a prophetic verse. It says this, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Jesus, I think in here, has in mind winning the true sight, the true hearing of all of humanity. In John 12, he says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And you may say, why doesn't God just get rid of evil? Like, why doesn't he just do it? He's God. As one famous author said, the dividing line between good and evil runs straight through the heart of every human being. This sickness, this deafness, it's in us. And if God comes with the sword of God's wrath against evil, none of us would be left. He didn't come with a sword in hand. He came with nails in hand, right? He didn't come to bring judgment. He actually came to bear judgment, which means when he groans, he knows the cost. He knows the only way to win true healing, to win us our true voice, was actually to lose his own voice, to go silent. The only way to give us true hearing was actually for the first time in his life to not hear the voice of his father on the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe he groaned because he was beginning to feel the weight of all of the sickness of humanity, of all the world's diseases, of all the world's guilt and shame and sin started to be placed firmly on his shoulders. And with all of that in view, with the jaws of death actually closing in on him, he still looked at this man, touched his ear, and said, be opened. <laughs> he did it. He loves us. How he loves us, church. Which brings us, I think, to our final point. The stunning Savior. Verse 37, people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is our Jesus. <laughs> He's the one who saves. He's the one who heals. He's the one who sees us exactly as we are. He's the one who comes to us exactly as we need him to come. He's the one who comes close, close enough to even spit. He's the one that comes close enough to even confront. He's the one that comes close enough to comfort us. He's the one that gets involved in our mess. He's the one that never gets detached. He's the one that never sits on his laurels. laurels. He's the one that makes the mute speak. He says, I'll go mute so that you can speak. I'll give you life, life to the full. This Jesus, ha, he does all things well. He's the stunning Savior. Um, I'm going to end on this, and Eric can come up. There's an anonymous quote, or I just don't know the author of it, but I'll probably read this quote again because I love it so much. So if you'll allow me that uh, indulgence um, at some point in the future. But I just love this. It says, The accounts of Jesus in the New Testament speak for themselves. He combines qualities that no one has ever seen. Despite his incredible claims, we never see him pompous or offended or standing on his own dignity. Despite being absolutely approachable to the weakest and most broken people, he is completely fearless 
before the powerful and corrupt. Despite being profoundly human and becoming weary and lonely, he and moved to joy and love and anger. Yet we never see him moody. We never see him inconsistent. We never see him strong where he should be tender or tender where he should be strong. Most interestingly of all, in all, in the accounts of his dealing with people, he's continually surprising us, shocking us, yet never disappointing us. It is difficult to imagine the word Jesus ought to have said or the deed he ought to have done. Nothing he does falls short. In fact, he is always surprising and taking your breath away because he is incomparably better than you could imagine for yourself. Why? These are the surprises of perfection. He is tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of self-confidence, unhesitating authority with a complete lack of self-absorption, holiness and unbending convictions, without the slightest lack of approachability. Power without insensitivity. Passion without prejudice. There is never a false step. There is never a jarring note. This is life at the highest. He really does all things well. (laughs) This is our Jesus. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Sanctuary Church Podcast. If we can be of any help to you, please don't hesitate to contact us at hello at sanctuarysf.com. We would love to connect. And wherever this finds you, may you experience the grace and peace of God our Father today.